Welcome to Ghoul's Night Out with your hostesses, Brandy and Jody. Hello, beautiful ghouls. Welcome. This is Brandy. I'm here with my sister, Jody. Hello. So, we are back with another happy hour. Mm-hmm. I did. Um, it's called Alien Abduction. Travis Walton, the true story behind Fire in the Sky. So they're referring to the movie. Which scared the shit out of me when I watched it. Yes. Many years ago. It's very scary. Yeah, I need to watch that again. Yeah, I do too. And I actually think I meant to look to see if it was like streaming anywhere. And I don't yeah. think it is. Oh. If I recall, I don't think it is. Gosh, I lo- I watched that. Gosh, Probably like 30 years ago. Yeah, I think it came out in the 70s or 80s, right? Or Yeah, it had to have been the 80s. I didn't I didn't watch it when it like first, first came out. Maybe it was longer than 35 or 30 years. I'm so old. <laughs> well, we're not going to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to pretend that's not yeah. true. Okay, so I do think... If you like this, you should watch this yourself. I do I do think it's worth the watch. So if you like the story, I think you should watch it. So we're going to start with the intro. This is one of the greatest alien abduction stories of all time. One, uh, in 1975, six men in northeast Arizona witnessed their crewmate kidnapped by a UFO. But was he really taken by aliens, or did his crewmates have something to do with it? They were saying to them, uh, just tell me where the body is, this will all be over. They took lie detector tests and became an international sensation. It was the inspiration for books and a blockbuster movie. And it also split a town, a small town apart. Um, what happened to Travis Walton 45 years later, they will reveal new evidence that's basically the intro. So, uh, November 5th, 1975, outside of Snowflake, Arizona, uh, the day Travis went missing. So, I'm going to refer to ARPO a lot in this. This is the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and they are located in Tucson, Arizona. They receive several hundred reports of UFO sightings all over the world. Uh, one of the most bizarre reports came from Snowflake, Arizona. So, okay, you say they're in Tucson, Arizona, which that's where we used to live when we lived in Arizona. Right. So I wonder how far away it was from us when it happened, because I'm pretty sure we lived there then. Do you know where Snowflake, Arizona is? No. ARPO is um, located, their organization is located in Tucson. Yeah. This this took place in um, Snowflake, Arizona. Yeah. So but, I want, that's what I mean. I wonder how close Snowflake is to Tucson. Oh, I, yeah, I'm not sure. But, I mean, can't be too far. Ooh, that's creepy. That is creepy. That's even creepier. That is. I never st- made that connection before. Yeah. That I was in the, that area. Literally, when this happened. Yes. Oh, my God. What did it, 1975? 1975. So I would have been two. I think we were there then. We might have been in Texas then. Oh, well, go ahead. Okay. Okay, so uh, this is an ordinary day 
A seven-men logging crew packs up um, after hours of hard work in a national forest. They said the forest it was, but I couldn't pronounce it. Um, I think Apache Sitgraves. That could be wrong. I'm not sure. Uh, Then we meet John. He was a crewmate of Travis and a UFO witness. He said it was a typical day of, of working hard up there. They worked until the sun went down. By the time they got everything loaded up, it had gotten fairly dark. So they begin the rough 30-mile drive back to Snowflake, back home. And foreman Mike Rogers is behind the wheel when they notice something strange. Uh, Then Mike is on screen, and he says that they haven't gone very far, and the guys start to see a light through the trees. Then we meet Steve, also a witness and a crewmate of Travis. He says that there was a bright light over to the right of them, but they couldn't tell what it was. At first, John said that he thought it was the moon, um, but he turned the other way and he saw the actual moon and said, right when we come around that bend, it hit you all at once. And he put his hair or his hands up in the air like it was this big, huge, what the fuck moment, like, whoa, Mm -hmm. what the fuck is this? So Steve is back and said that, It was just a saucer sitting there, not moving. They said it was softly glowing, like from the inside out. Um, I want to make a note at this point. They are, so these guys are telling this story and they are switching. You know how they do on all the documentaries. They switch from guy to guy. Mm -hmm. So they are switching from man to man and they literally are telling the exact same story. Yeah. And they are switching. So these guys are telling one story and they're switching the camera feed. So I love the way that they did that because Mm. they are telling the same story they have fucking told for 45 years. Yeah. So fucking scary. Yes. Keep that in mind. Um, At 22 years old, Travis is in the passenger seat and he startles everyone. John says Mike hasn't even stopped the truck yet, and Travis is already opening the door. And Mike is back and says that Travis started walking at a pretty brisk pace towards this thing. Which, might I add, is fucking stupid. Yeah. Um, And he stood there for a few seconds, and this is when this thing starts making a noise. It was very shocking. Everyone was, like, freaked out. John said, I heard this noise and was like, oh, crap. Mm -hmm. Mike says he felt a rumble in the steering wheel and that fucking spooked him. Everyone starts yelling at Travis to get back in the fucking truck. They were all terrified. Steve is back and he says that all of a sudden a bluish light came out and John says the woods lit up like a bluish green. Steve says it zapped him in the chest and he flies back like 15 feet, and his body bounces off the ground. Wait, it hit Steve? No, it hit Travis. Oh, okay. So Travis is outside. Everyone else is inside the, <clears throat> okay. the truck. And they're watching this happen. So when they see Travis bounce off the ground, Mike turns that truck on, and they take off. He says, at this point, it was blind panic. Like, they didn't know. He said he had white knuckles. Um, they went about a quarter of a mile and he hit the brakes. And the guys are like, why are you stopping? They're like freaking out. And they're like, that thing could be chasing us. Mike says, we left Travis back there. We have to go back. And he says, that's when he basically became hysterical. 
so John is back, and they said that while they were standing there outside the truck, they saw a flash. So they're all, like, arguing whether they should go back or not, and they see a flash. And they all assumed that it was what they had saw, that craft. And Mike says it was a split second, and it was gone. So Steve comes back on and says, now that it was gone, they all got their courage back. <laughs> so, because he's like, yeah, we saw it take off. So we were like, okay, we can go back now. <laughs> and they couldn't leave Travis. <laughs> you know, honestly, I probably would have done the exact Absolutely. same thing. Absolutely. I would have gotten my ass out of there. Well, and honestly, these guys thought that he was dead. Like they yeah. thought that he, they saw him bounce off the ground. Like they thought that he was dead. So they, uh, they couldn't leave Travis. So they very slowly got back and went back. Uh, they walked the perimeter and looked in the bushes. They thought maybe he had crawled off, but he was nowhere to be found. Uh, Mike kind of lost it, kind of broke down. It was his best friend and he just wasn't there. Like, where the fuck is he? So they're all guilt ridden terrified and in way over their heads. So the crew members decide to call law enforcement for help. So Mike is back and says that they got back in the truck and and they left. It was a very, very emotional trip. And there was a phone substation. So they stopped and called the sheriff's department. The first officer arriving on scene is Navajo County Sheriff's Deputy Chuck Ellison. Uh, now we meet Chuck and this, he was on there. He's super old on, in this interview. And I think it was in 2014. So I'm, I'm assuming he's, he's passed away since, but um, we see this old interview and he said that there, they were all obviously very upset and he wanted to get close to them all to see if he could, he wanted to smell them. So if he could smell weed or alcohol mm-hmm. on them. Um, but he he didn't detect anything and he didn't he but he did sense that something was amiss. He, so he questions all of the members and the crew, starting with the foreman, Mike Rogers, and he, he was the boss. He also Travis had dated his sister, Dana. Travis actually was dating his sister, Dana, at the time. Also in the crew is John, who is Mike's brother in law. John gets along with everyone knew Travis since he was a teenager and John actually brought two other guys on the crew. So Dwayne and Alan, Alan was like the black sheep of the crew. Um, And then we have Kenny and Steve. Steve was the youngest and he was the gopher. Uh, When the guys tell deputy Ellison that Travis was attacked by a UFO, he calls his superior Marlon Gillespie. And then we meet Marlon's daughter, Shelly Moore. He was the sheriff for the county for many years. He showed up and he was told what happened and he was looking for beer bottles. He did not believe them at all. Then Shelly's back and she said that he did believe that they saw something. He could tell that they were really scared, but he didn't know if they were scared because they had done something or if they had actually seen Travis get taken. So... Steve says that the sheriff told Mike that he wanted him to go back with him to the site and he wanted two other guys to go back and the rest needed to go back to Snowflake and don't leave town. So Mike, Alan, and Kenny 
lead the sheriff deputies back to the site, and there was no sign of Travis still um, or the supposed craft. So Chuck is back, and he said that he couldn't see any markings on the ground that would indicate landing or taking off of anything. And he also said he didn't see any footprints of any kind. There were no odors, no burns. And he said, well, Travis isn't here. We may as well leave. It's still dark and they have a very small sheriff's department. So they really couldn't do anything else until the morning um, until they could launch a search party. So Travis is missing now. And his older brother, Don, recalls the night that changed his family's life forever. Um, And now we meet Don. So this is Travis's older brother. So he said that his mother came to his house around 3 a.m. And she was pretty hysterical when she got there. She kept saying that they got him. They got him. And he didn't know. He didn't know what to think. The rest of the crew members' families, but they were also waiting for the other guys to come home. And when they do arrive back at home, they start telling their family members what happened. And Mike's sister-in-law said it looked like Mike had aged like 10 to 20 years in that day. Like from the time she saw him that morning. Um, Mike really felt responsible. Plus, his little sister was dating Travis at the time. So um, then we meet Dana. Uh, She said she couldn't believe what she was hearing, obviously. Like, could you imagine someone coming home and telling, and your boyfriend is gone? Like, oh, my God. Uh, But she believed them. She said that they were, like, obviously traumatized. She was terrified and really worried about Travis. Um, Everyone was so scared, and it really, really changed their reality. Well, yeah. Yeah. This is unbelievable. I'm telling you, watch this. It's crazy. Okay, so now we're on uh, November 6th, which is the next day, and Travis has been missing. for. This is day one of Travis missing. Uh, Shelly comes back and says that her mother told her that her dad was investigating a UFO abduction, and the news spreads like wildfire. Half of the people believed it, the other half didn't. It was literally dividing families and friends. Um, And you got to remember, around this time, everyone was all about space, and the moon landing wasn't far before this. Um, And then Ben Hansen comes on screen, which, yeah, if you don't know him, he is so into this crap. He's all about paranormal and UFOs. Um, Former FBI, and he is a now UFO researcher. He says that the year 1975 was particularly active for UFOs. There were sightings all across the country, and he says this was called a flap. So they research patterns as to why this area or why this time. And Arizona was one of the top areas in the world for UFO research. So several reports of UFOs in this area, military spaces, Roswell, they're all in this area. Um, so it makes sense that this is where that they would they would want to start to research us if they did come. So Travis is still missing, and local law enforcement don't believe that he was abducted by aliens. But he's nowhere to be found. So they launch this massive manhunt. They started where it started, and they had helicopters, dogs, and people walking everywhere searching. There was about 150 to 200 people looking for him. Now, since no one is finding anything, they start to suspect foul play, and everyone starts turning to Mike asking, where, where is he? So John comes back and says that 
each of the crew members were put into different groups and each group had a deputy in it. They were told, um, they were telling him that, like, just tell, just tell us where the body is and it would all be over. And this is when the crew realizes that they are being suspected of murder. So they're like, oh my fucking God. So they start looking through brush piles, nothing. All the crew members couldn't understand why they weren't finding him. Like, he was there, you know? And, oh my God, how frustrating would that be? Very. Especially if you were being looked at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because where the fuck is he? There was evidence that something very strange had happened in those woods. Someone brought a Geiger counter. And Don claims that he was the only living person that saw the readings on this Geiger counter. He stated that he saw it spike at the site of the UFO, like literally off the scales. Um, and But it would drop off when you kind of went away from that area. But that kind of radiation scared Don, which obviously that's, mm-hmm. that's scary shit. Okay, so day two of Travis being missing, which is November 7th. They show an old news broadcast of the case. And honestly, it sounds fucking ridiculous. It sounded on the news. It would sound ridiculous now. Yeah. I mean, honestly, even though I think people are, you know, a little bit more accepting of stories like that. Yeah. It would still, if, if someone came up missing. Yeah. And they were nowhere. And, and were, these people yeah. that they that this person was with are saying that he he was abducted by aliens. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean it's just natural that you'd be like, uh, come on. Exactly. What what happened? Exactly. What'd you do? Right. <laughs> so it's still making headlines. The media descends on on Snowflake. There are people there from all around the world now. Everyone that was involved was being hounded by all this media attention, which was really weird for them. I mean, these are small town people. They're not, you know, they're not used to this at all. Sheriff's phone was ringing constantly and they depended on that phone for his job. So, like, he couldn't just take it off the, the you know, the, yeah. the uh, hook. Then they say that mysterious outsiders started showing up to search for Travis. And they show uh, men in black reenactments. John said that you could tell, you could always tell a government car, suits, sunglasses, everything. I didn't realize that the men in black were there, too. Yeah, they showed up. Oh. So Ben comes back on and says that there are so many cases of unidentified agents showing up on these cases to follow up. John says that he would leave to go somewhere, and by the time he got there, they had already... But they're, they were already there. And he he's like, I don't know how they knew where I was going. So, like, I thought, well, maybe his phone was tapped, most likely. Yeah, probably. So, the government wanted to know about this case. They, they knew that they were real back then. And Travis had now been missing for three days. And everyone was getting more and more worried and scared. Um, four out of five people thought it was a hoax or a murder. The law enforcement was investigating this case as a homicide. They didn't take or it didn't take long to focus in on this on a suspect and they chose Alan. Alan was kind of the black sheep of the crew. He was the youngest and he was just brought on um, 
by by one of the other guys. Uh, they found out that there had been a fight that he had with Travis, and it was it was known that he didn't really care for Mike or Travis. Don, Travis's brother, was convinced that he had something to do with it. He even went he even accused him of killing Travis, which is awful. It's awful. The officers are turning up the heat on these guys. They're grilling them. Come on, just admit it. Just admit it. They would say that to them all the time. They want wanted them to just turn someone in. That's the, mm-hmm. They wanted someone. So they asked them to take polygraph tests. Um, Mike jumps at this chance to clear them, obviously, because they know they didn't do anything. They will do anything to clear their names because they know they're not lying. So... Now we are on November 10th, which is the fifth day that Travis is missing, and the guys are summoned to take these tests at a courthouse. They're very scared. Uh, The jail was in the same building, and Steve comes on and he says, I was more scared going to that courthouse than when he saw Travis get zapped. Mm, Wow. Yeah. They thought they were going to go in that building and they weren't coming out. So they went. It took all day long. Each test was two hours apiece. They were asked the same sets of questions three times. The first three regard the alleged murder of Travis Walton. The subject of the final question was the UFO. Mike says that by the time the guy giving the test was done, he believed in aliens. Wow. Yep. Five out of the six men passed outright. The only one that came back as inconclusive was Alan, and that was only on the third set of questions. On He passed the first two sets of questions, and it was inconclusive because he accidentally pulled himself away from the machine on the last run of mm. questions. So it was the only reason why it was inconclusive. So six out of six passed outright. Everyone was stunned. <laughs> Travis is still missing five days and they are back to square one. This is so scary. I can't even tell you. (laughs) I like, okay, so I believe in aliens. Absolutely. I think it's so narcissistic of anyone to believe that we are the only living beings. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But to actually see these guys talk about it and it's, it fucking happened to them 1000%. But it's so hard to wrap my head around that. Yeah. Sorry. I just No, you're totally right. It's It's, so scary. It is. It is very scary. So late that night, uh, the phone at Travis's sister's home rings. And his brother, or Travis's brother-in-law, Grant, answers the phone. Now we meet Grant, and he says that he had just got home from work, and the phone rang. And it was fucking Travis saying, hey, it's Travis. Come get me. Holy shit. After five days and everyone thinks he's dead. Yep. (laughs) So November 10th, 1975 at 10 p.m. Grant thought, yeah, right. (laughs) And he was about to hang up the phone. Then he said, no, 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 please don't hang up. <laughs> this is Travis. So they went to Travis's mother's house and they got in a truck and headed to the place where he said he was. Oh, my fucking God. Could you imagine that trip? Mm. So now Travis is with us and he starts telling his story at this point. 
He says he must have passed out because the next thing he knew, the headlights were shining into the phone booth and his brother had came um, and like lifted him up, basically. And he said he was just hysterical. Um, They got him into the truck and he was breaking down. Now we hear a rare interview from Travis and what he recalls leading up to the phone call. So this is, quote, I found myself laying on the road roadway and I saw a craft hovering there that just sat there for, for a second. Uh, that's the last I seen them. That was it. Hmm. So wandering on the road for what feels like hours, Travis recognizes the lights of Heber, Arizona in the distance. Um, so he ran into town and called his family. On the way back home, he's trying to piece together what the fuck happened. And the hardest thing for him to come to terms with was that in this very short period of time that he thought in reality had been five days, he literally thought it was the same day. Oh, he said his um, his brother told him to feel his face. He's like, feel your face. And he did. And there was about a week's worth of growth. Mm. And Travis couldn't couldn't believe that. Like I said, as far as he knew, he thought it was the same night, like the same night he got abducted. Yeah. He said he was trying to explain what happened, but he was just making it worse. He said his family is like, maybe just try not to talk right now. (laughs) (laughs) So Don starts talking about how scared the family had been and everyone was relieved, but like super shocked. Um, How how do you deal with this? What like what do you do next? So Travis and Dana, they got married and in and but those five days still weigh heavily on them. This is 45 years later. And we meet them both. They're sitting at their kitchen table talking about it, which is fucking nuts to begin with. They're Mm -hmm. sitting at their kitchen table talking about his alien abduction. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, And Travis asked her if she ever thought that maybe the guys had done something, which I thought was crazy because it literally sounded like he had never asked her that before. So, like, we're kind of witnessing that for the first time. And she was like, um, oh, she says no. She's like, no, I never did. I mean, obviously, that's her brother. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she said people that, that she's known her whole life. Exactly. Yeah. She said that during that time, she went outside and looked up and and asked, will you please bring Travis back? And she like, she starts bawling at this. She broke down and he hugs her. Says, oh, my God. And he said, well, they must have heard you. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so back um, in the day, we're going back. Travis is in a fragile state and his brother, Dwayne, is determined to protect him from intense scrutiny from the media or law enforcement. So he calls Arpo uh, because he's desperate. So Jim and Carol Lorenzen started this organization, but they wanted it to be credible. So they brought in doctors and scientists who were respected in their fields and consulted with them any time they had a case. So Dwayne called them and they had medical doctors within the organization and they agreed to do an examination on Travis. So in the dead of night, Dwayne sneaks Travis out of Snowflake. They went to a hotel, checked in under a false name and brought these doctors in. They didn't want any leaks of what happened or what was happening before testing. 
Travis tells them what he remembers from the night of November 5th, starting with the moment he exited the truck. So Travis is talking now and says that it was more of just an impulse. Seeing this object there for some reason, he assumed it was going to take off before he got too close. Why? I don't know. There was a real low rumbling sound, um, sort of like a heartbeat mm-hmm. pounding. Probably like a womp, womp, Yeah, womp. yeah. Uh, and then some very high frequency sounds. He said it was very, very hard to describe these sounds. And the closer he got to it, suddenly it got louder and it started to move. He was startled and out of fear, he jumped for cover and said that he thought, well, I got myself in a bad situation here. <laughs> yeah, thank <laughs> he, he stood up and he was going to run back toward the truck. And as soon as he stood up, he felt this stunning force. Next thing he remembers, he's waking up on the side of the road five days later. So he does he ever remember what happened? I'll go through. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So he decided to undergo a controversial technique called regressive hypnosis. Oh, yeah. This has been used since the Betty and Barney Hill case in 1961. The tapes from these sessions that Barney and uh, Betty Hill have are chilling to hear. And they play some of the recording of it. And it seems as if Barney is reliving that night as if he's actually there during this hypnosis. So he's screaming, Betty, we got to get out of here. It's really, really chilling. Mm. Uh, They call in Dr. James Harder, who is ARPO director of research, and they schedule a hypnosis session. Don't you think it would be so cool to work for something, someplace like that? I would be terrified, though. I would. I'd be like, you know, I'll be in the building. Yeah. Just, you know, doing the paperwork and stuff. And you guys keep the door, like, a little cracked. Yeah. So I can hear. Yeah. But (laughs) I'm not going anywhere. Don't tell me anything. (laughs) No, I want to hear it. I just don't. I don't want to experience anything. I don't think it works like that. No, probably not. (laughs) Okay, so in the meantime, Travis's doctors are running all kinds of tests. Um, They drug tested his blood and urine, and they found nothing. Despite Arpo's best efforts, Travis's reappearance doesn't stay secret for long. Then Ben is back and says that the operator who patched Travis's call through to his family actually stayed on the line and listened to the call. Oh, so well, she first of all, rude. I know. And second of all, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, she recognized that name because it had been all over the yeah. news. And um, and he gave his name when he called. And she knew this was going to be fucking huge. So she was like, holy shit. So <laughs> she takes this information and leaks it to the sheriff's office, like immediately. So now Shelly is back. And I don't care for her in this moment. She's talking about how no one bothered to tell law enforcement that Travis was back. And who's Shelly again? Shelly is the daughter of the sheriff at the time. All right. And she says that they chose not to tell law enforcement. So that that's the last thing they're going to be thinking about when someone from their family absolutely calls them after five days of being disappeared exactly i wrote in a little note 
I said, if the operator listened, she was literally the very first person to know that he was back. The very first. So how long did it take her to leak that to the sheriff? Did they even have time to tell the sheriff's office before she did? And she was around phones all fucking day, so she could immediately tell them if she Mm -hmm. wanted to. So did she give them any time to even wrap their heads around the fact that Travis may be back? That might not even be him. Yeah. They don't even know what's going on at this point. So I didn't care for the fact that Shelly was like, meh, they didn't, (laughs) you know, like that's bullshit. Yeah, it is. So... Um, plus his family did feel that he at this time was way too fucked up to be questioned by anybody. Yeah. By law enforcement. And they would have jumped on him absolutely, right away. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for the first few days, Dwayne acts as the family spokesperson and does any interviews. Um, and before long, it's international news. But Travis is holed up in a hotel room and he's trying to literally deal internally with what happened to him. Could you imagine being no. a- being no. alive and an adult at that time, watching the news. Oh, my God. Could you imagine I that? I not know what to believe. I know. Oh, my God. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so now Travis is with his family, and he's getting ready to undergo a session of regressive hypnosis. So four days after his return, he meets with Dr. James Harder in a Phoenix hotel room. And we hear a clip of Travis talking about this hypnosis and said it was really helping him to remember things without the fear that went along with it. He said that at first he wasn't able to recall anything because of the fear. Like he, his mind just completely blocked it out. Um, and Dr. Harder takes him back to the moment that he was taken aboard the ship and the next five days of missing time. So next we hear Travis again and he is telling us about what he remembers He was laying on his back, slowly came to, and thought he was in a hospital at first. Uh, He felt as if something was seriously wrong. He saw a light above him and said it was bright, but not too bright, so he could still make things out around the room. He was looking around, trying to figure out where he was. He was in a small space, but there was something lying on his chest with some kind of light attached to it. He looked past that and saw faces, but they were so blurry that he figured it was doctors wearing surgical masks. Then he realizes that these aren't people, that he was looking at an alien face. That is so, I just got chills. I know. I I can't even imagine. I know. He's about five feet tall, no hair, really white skin, small features, except for very large eyes. Mm. To Travis, their strange appearance and blank expressions are unnerving. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think so. The feeling of pain and suffocation that that he was expressing, they expressed no emotions on their face whatsoever. And he felt that that was threatening. Mm. So he freaked out. He jumped off the table. And when he did... The thing that was the device that was on his chest fell off of him and it it was fight or flight. He grabbed a metal tube or rod, whatever he saw or like whatever was near him and started swinging. (laughs) The only opening in the room was behind these things. And suddenly they change course and they leave the room. He was afraid that they would come back. So he left 
and started looking for a way out. He said the whole craft was lit pretty dimly by our standards, and he felt like there wasn't enough air, like the air was really thin and humid. He was struggling to see, and he came across another door, and the room appears to be empty but a single chair, and he went and he, he approached the chair and notices the light from the room shift. There was some kind of a projection or viewing thing, and he could see a map of stars. He could barely see the light when outside of the chair, but once he sat in the chair, he could see the stars better. So, like, you had Why to be right would he in sit front. in the chair? He's trying to find a way out. He doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Sitting in a chair ain't going to do any good. <laughs> well... On the arm of the chair was a screen. Okay, so this is 1975, right? And this this kind of blew my mind. He said on the arm of the chair was a screen with some colored spots that he took to be buttons. That is totally like a smartphone. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Um, he tried to press the buttons, but the buttons didn't do anything. Just he was thinking maybe one of these will open a door. And he says he thought that if he could just open a door, he could probably drop 15 to 20 feet to the ground. And he could handle that. Yeah, no. I know. <laughs> I know. So the buttons, the buttons didn't do anything again. He starts to look around and notices he's not alone. He says there is a form that looks oddly familiar that could possibly be human. So he isn't getting anywhere with this chair. So he starts to go back out into the corridor and this person thing is blocking his way. He says he thought it was a human, but and he immediately assumed it was NASA or some or someone coming to save him and take him away from these aliens. He thought like this is over. Um, and in a rare interview, Travis describes this encounter. So he says this was a human looking person, someone you may pass in a crowd. Oh shit. Yeah, I just got chills. Me too. Bigger and taller than Travis, more muscular, very large. Um, he said he went up to him and tried to talk to him, but he didn't answer Travis. And so now we see Travis back in present day, and he said that he was yelling questions at this person. Where am I? What are these things? Get me out of here. He didn't really respond, but he takes Travis's arm and starts to escort him farther down the corridor. It's dimly lit again. They came to a door and he didn't see this individual or anything, um, but the door opened. So it's like automatic door. Mm -hmm. So they enter some kind of airlock, a booth-like thing. And then he is overcome by a sudden shift. So he could feel air coming in that was cooler, and he could breathe better. So on the on the outside, light was so much brighter by comparison, and he describes being ushered through something like an alien aircraft hangar in another rare interview. So it was like a hangar that a bunch of aircrafts were in. These two beings, they were not wearing helmets. They gave Travis a clear look at what UFO researchers call Nordic aliens. So these are tall, human-like Scandinavian in, in appearance. Travis notices an examination table in the middle of the room, and the original alien starts pushing him towards it. 
So Travis is very much resisting. He's terrified. And these things aren't answering any of his questions. So fighting with all of his might, the others step in and are trying to hold him with abnormal strength. Travis is so scared and he was fighting, but they didn't have too much trouble getting him to lay down. That's not good. No. Uh, Then we go back to a different interview and Travis is saying what happened next. So they put a mask on his face um, and it was like an oxygen mask with a hose connected to it and he completely blacked out. Next thing he remembers was waking up outside. He could feel the cold air. After he came back, he wasn't the same. He seemed scared all the time, and no one what to knew, no one knew what to do to help him. Oh yeah, I would be too. I know. So after all these medical tests and therapy sessions, Travis heads back home to Snowflake. Dawn is back and said that Travis looked skinny, but his mother was so relieved she just cried. And he said his mother never cried, but she she cried. They thought they had lost him. Media frenzy only intensified as Travis emerges. It was a circus. There's like a hundred people in their yard all the time trying to get pictures or stories. So trying to calm down this, you know, um, traumatized and reluctant Travis gives his first interview. So they show clips of this old interview. Media attention was insane. Talk of the town for a long time. And the guys from the crew never knew if they would get a beer bought for them or a punch thrown at them. It was like literally half and half. People believed them or they didn't. Okay. So the guys, once suspected of murder, found themselves scrutinized as well for pulling off a hoax. John was out of there. He moved and never went back. Everyone would stare at the family. It was just craziness. Among the skeptics would be Travis's uh, Travis Walton's nemesis. That's what they said. No. <laughs> King of UFO debunkers, Philip Class. Probably well-known skeptic, most well-known skeptic and debunker of all time, spent quite a bit of time and wrote several books ridiculing the fact that UFOs should not be considered real at all. How, what an idiot. Yeah. How can you think like that? How are you so narcissistic that you can't think any other... Are you fucking kidding me? No. (laughs) Not to mention, UFOs have been seen forever. Yeah. Like, literally, forever. Yeah, they're in Egyptian drawings. Yes, they are. He did not buy Travis's story at all. He thought all those guys had made it up, and he he set out to prove that any way he could. He did extensive research on the case and thought that the guys on the crew made it up to get out of the logging contract. So Travis comes back on and said that at that time they had completed like 80% of this logging contract that they were on and they were also nearing the contract deadline. So they wanted to get it done before the the weather got cold and because, you know, this was in November and they also didn't want the contract to default. So skeptics loved this information, and this was not at all what happened. After the incident, uh, Mike tried to get the guys to go back and finish the job, actually, but no one would go back there. Hell no. (laughs) No. I wouldn't either. So they actually brought in another crew, a different crew, to finish, um, unfortunately, to Mike's financial disadvantage. 
Um, but really dumb to think that that was they would have anything to do with it, and that th- there were false claims that really bothered Travis for years, and he thought that there could have been a coordinated campaign to discredit him. And if that was the case, who was behind it? So they're struggling to get back to normal. Two years after the incident, Travis and Dana got married, and they tried to act like nothing happened. <laughs> but there was small-town gossip that kept getting in the way of that. People started making up rumors, drugs, alcohol was involved. Nothing, again, was found. Plus, Steve comes on. He's like, we were cutting down trees. He's like, you can't be drunk or high and Mm -hmm. cut down trees. He was like, no, no way. Uh, So Arpo had compiled evidence that points to this really happening. They look at his blood samples for ketones, which would indicate that if his body started to consume its own reserves of fat or even muscle in order to maintain life, because when he came back, he wasn't doing very good. He was very dehydrated. He had lost 10 to 12 pounds in a short period of time, but no ketones were found, Hmm. which is strange. Yeah. So is it possible that they knew enough about us to try to nourish him in some way? Um, plus, it would have been nearly impossible for him to survive out in those woods with no supplies at all. Uh, he was also wearing the same clothes he had on when he went missing when they found him. There had also been lots of reports in the month leading up to the abduction. In May of that year, there was a mother and her children that claimed to see a craft and said that they heard a low rumbling sound that was very similar to what Travis described right before it took off. Um, So perhaps that is some of the strongest evidence and the strongest evidence came from the sheriff's department. They all told nearly identical stories. They all passed lie detector tests and that the police department had been administered. So the police department administered lie detector tests that six different people passed. So on February 7th, 1976, Travis and Dwayne, they also take polygraph tests. And they both pass as well. And this leads to further credibility of Travis's claims. So after years of Travis and all the crew member stories, never wavering, the public opinion finally leans towards their way or starts to. So in 1975, when this happened, the government's immediate response to anything like this was always, it's not true. There's nothing. No worries. Go about your business. Now, in 2021, the government is saying, okay, (laughs) yeah, there's actually a lot of things out there (laughs) that are unidentified, and yeah, they're real. Yeah. So, and also, they're saying that, yes, they are out there, yes, they are real, and we did not make them. That's a Mm, big thing. Yeah. So, our own government is now admitting so guess what it's time to believe mm-hmm. unfortunately alan passed away in 2010 and the crew Dwayne. so there were actually two Dwaynes. one of the Dwaynes passed away in 2018 so unfortunately they didn't get to see nasa coming oh. out with shit that proves they fucking saw something yeah So Steve comes back on and stated that he wishes that the guys could have, you know, see the turnaround in people's opinions. These poor guys lived their lives probably always thinking everyone thought they were nuts. 
1978, Travis wrote a book. It's called The Travis Walton Experience. And in this book, which is very expensive, by the way. Is it? Yeah, I can't find it anywhere. Travis actually writes for for his case and against his case. And he goes point by point and debunks every bit of it. Mm. So he totally fucking proves himself right in this book. Then Hollywood actually caught uh, caught wind of this story, and a movie was made March 12, 1993. Oh, there you go. So I was actually 11 when that came out. I Um, was 20. So Fire in the Sky is released, and Travis is again swept up in public eye. So many more people know the story, and like clockwork, Travis is being called a liar again. All the familiar skeptics return, including Philip Class. Mm. But this time, Travis has the last word. So now we see a, an old clip from a Larry King interview with Philip Class. And Larry asks, so you think all seven of these guys are just lying? And his response, quote, based on the physical evidence that should be there, but is not. Mm-hmm. That's his argument. Well... Then we hear laughing, and Larry says, Travis, why are you laughing? And they pan over, and Travis is sitting there. (laughs) And he starts, he's like laughing, and Larry's like, you know, what's going on? He's like, this is a typical reasoning in reasoning patterns of this man. He uses in attacking all UFO cases. He equates the absence of evidence to the evidence of absence. <laughs> Love it. So basically, he's full of shit. Yes, he Doesn't is. know what he's fucking talking about. Yep. And Travis knows what he's talking about. So this film release is a moral victory for Travis and his crewmates. The movie wasn't just a movie. It was based on real life. We can't just dismiss these cases anymore. So in 2014, Ben meets Travis at the site of the UFO abduction to see if they can find any remaining evidence of the encounter. This was also the first time the site was made public. So people weren't there planting things, taking things. It was never actually made public, the actual site Mm -hmm. of the abduction. So they come across some tree stumps. Oh, wait. Oh, they gathered any remaining evidence that they could find. And... They methodically went through it. They treated the site like a crime scene. They came across some tree stumps. Ben says that they were broke off shortly after the incident. So, of course, you can count the rings in the tree to see, you know, where the tree would have been in 1975. And they noticed something strange. So, if you think of the rings, they are all fairly similar in size. It's just concentric circles. Mm -hmm. But in these trees... The rings that were facing the clearing were spaced out farther, meaning that on that side of the tree alone, there was a greater growth. Hmm. And they found this in all those trees around where the craft would have been hovering. It was literally a circle of trees that radiation could could have caused these trees to mutate. Yeah. Yeah. So Ben starts doing research on these and found some studies that were done after Chernobyl. And the studies found that the trees near Chernobyl grew greater than 
any other period of time. So soil samples are tested and there was a higher concentration of iron in the soil compared to the control sample from farther away. Other UFO cases have the same thing and they think it may be because it's magnetized and it's pulling these things from the lower levels of the ground so they're easily found. So Travis's case may be the best case to date with evidence of the encounter. Now, with recent stories coming out, something is going on. We can't rule out aliens. We are having good progress that the government is actually coming out and saying, yep, this is real. So it's time to believe. I I think that at some point, aliens are going to come. And I hope it's way past my time. <laughs> I honest, Honestly, with the way the world is right now... I think an alien invasion might be the only thing that will save hum- humans because we are turning on each other like crazy. So maybe if aliens come down, we might band together as humans since there's another species and maybe like actually get along for once ever. Mm, I think you're wishing for too much there <laughs> well again i hope i'm long dead before yeah, any yes, of that happens. yes i don't want to i don't want to be here for any could you imagine like if aliens just started showing up no. and like getting jobs and shit no oh my god no that would be insane it would be <laughs> if aliens <laughs> did come it would be a long time before they start showing up at people's jobs and stuff <laughs> why you know, this, is, this is paul He's from the planet, whatever. We only call him Paul because we can't pronounce his accent. Make him welcome. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Start hiring bilingual people that speak alien. Oh, my God. (laughs) Are you crazy? Um, Holy shit, though. Like, I I seriously do think you should watch that. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it tomorrow. It's really, it's scary as fuck. Yeah. It's just scary. And I'm going to try to look for the movie, too. I want to watch the movie I think I will, too. I think I looked for it. I meant to, at least. I'm pretty sure I did, and I don't remember finding it, so. What's it called? Fire in the Sky? Yep. Fire in the Sky. I'm going to try to look for it and see if I can find it. It's a good one. So creepy. It's super creepy. Well, if you guys have any suggestions or documentaries you want to watch but you don't have time, I will watch it and tell you all about it. You can email those to ghoulsnightoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can look us up on Facebook and request to join the group. Rate, review, subscribe, and we will talk to you next week. Later. Bye.